0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Total Wine and More. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine and More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. B21. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
1: For MaximumFun.org and NPR, it's Bullseye. In 1971, Sonia Manzano was in her early 20s. She was a junior in college studying acting. She'd just gone back home to New York for her first gig, a role in an off-Broadway musical called Godspell. While she was there, she got an audition for another part. This time, it was a TV show for kids set in New York. She got that part, and her life changed forever. The show, of course, was Sesame Street. Sonia played Maria. One of the human friends to Big Bird and Grover and the
0: Count. Maria oh. oh, did I give you a scare? Yes. Oh, sorry. I just wanted to find out why are you walking around like that, muttering to yourself?
2: Well, I'm trying to figure out the right way to go in there and ask Luis to give me a raise. Oh, I see. Uh, Maria? Huh? What's a raise? Well, it means that I'm going to ask him to pay me more money for the work I do in the fix-it
1: shop. Oh! Oh, more... Oh, that's very important. you're telling me. Mm. (laughs) Sonia performed on the show for over four decades, a legend of kids' television who helped change what that medium could be. And now she has a show of her own. Monsanto created an animated kids' series called Alma's Way. It centers around the show's title character, Alma Rivera. She's a six-year-old girl living in the Bronx. She's Puerto Rican. When I talked to Manzano in 2021, the first season of Alma's Way had just premiered. We're now in the thick of season two. Let's listen to a little bit of Alma's Way. Alma and her friends have been painting a mural on a neighborhood storefront. And as you'll hear, one of the friends has been taking some artistic liberties that don't match Alma's design. So Alma has to figure out a polite way to get her pal back on the same page. I can't wait to see the mural, Alma.
2: Let's look. It looks just like my design. <gasps> uh, uh, it's um different than your design.
0: It's not quite what I was expecting. <laughs> Pretty awesome, right?
2: I gotta get Andre to stop changing my design, but how? I know. I gotta speak up like I did last time. Hey, Andre, I wanted a mural to be the view from my window. Like this, see? Oh, you don't like my ideas? Your design is cool, but this is my design. And I've never looked out my window and seen a hippo with a flying saucer in the Bronx. Yeah, me neither. If you want to add something to my design, just ask first,
1: okay? Sonia, it's so nice to have you on Bullseye. Thank you for making the time. Sure, my pleasure. So once you think you're out, and they keep pulling you back in. (laughs) Right.
2: (laughs) Absolutely right. I feel like uh, Michael Corleone in uh, the Godfather movies when he said at one point, you know, I try to get out, but they pull me back. I'm back at PBS. So, what did you want to do
1: in? children's entertainment on PBS that you hadn't already done in your 44 years on Sesame Street.
2: Wow, what a what a question. Well, when uh PBS Kids gave me the opportunity to create a show, I I looked around. That's what Sesame Street always did, looked around to see what the needs of American kids were, and I noticed that a lot of kids were turned off to to school because they had to memorize or there were all too many kids in the classroom or they didn't speak English and they were tested every 20 minutes and they thought that memorization was thinking and I thought this was an opportunity to dispel that. So the show Simply Alma's Way is about thinking that everybody has a brain and you could use it.
1: It also has a really strong sense of place that you don't find in a lot of children's television, I think.
2: Yeah, that was um uh that came about like this. As you know Sesame Street was sort of based in well, it could be Harlem, it could be El Barrio, you knew it was the city because of that wonderful brownstone in Mr. Hooper's store and the construction doors and all of that. You knew it was New York, and uh, but we never really set it on Sesame Street. So I was going to do the same thing on Alma's Way until I uh, placed it in the Bronx, and I thought, well, people will sort of know it's the Bronx. And then Ellen um, Doherty of Fred Rogers Productions said no, why don't we just go for it? If it's in the Bronx, let's put it in the Bronx. So we we were not shy about placing it in the Bronx and, and it's charming. It's like I felt when I learned Spider-Man was in Queens and I thought, "Oh. <laughs> I know Queens. <laughs> I don't know. There's a makes it a little bit more real and we've gone so far as to even have the number 6 train.
1: This came up on our show For some reason, maybe it was when Carol Spinney was on years ago, but I grew up watching Sesame Street and as I thought about it retrospectively and why it was so important to me, other than the obvious reasons of it, you know, (laughs) being maybe the greatest television show for children (laughs) of all time. And one of the things that I thought of was that I grew up in the city and, you know, Every piece of children's entertainment involved people wandering through their front yard and out their front fence and that kind of thing, which was totally foreign to me. Like, it was as though all of children's entertainment existed in a fairy tale world. Yes. Like, that's where kids in children's entertainment lived, and it was a different kind of kid that was fictional relative
2: to my actual childhood. Yes, that's that's exactly right. They were either in fairy tale land or a suburb. There was never an urban environment for some reason and because Sesame Street's original target audience was underserved African American children who lived in urban areas, It had to speak to those children from a place that was familiar to them. So they were very careful about making sure that the cast looked like people they would relate to and also the environment. Of course, another huge Sesame Street tenant was that kids want to be in the real world. They really do want to grow up. This idea that Peter Pan had, I'll never grow up, never grow up, never grow up, not me, is a fallacy. It's not really true. Kids always want to be big and, you know, get a part of the action. We always say to kids, oh, what a big boy you are, what a big girl you are, you did that. How proud I am. You never say, oh, how little you are, stay that way. You're a New Yorker yourself. Can you tell me where you grew up? I grew up in the South Bronx. I was born in Bellevue Hospital and lived on First Avenue for a very little while and then moved to 3858 Third Avenue, when the Third Avenue elevator train was still up, and then moved on to uh, Southern Boulevard. And as my parents tried to sort of claw their way out of the ghetto, and then up to Throgs Neck when they finally had their house. But then by that time, I had uh, gone off to college. But I lived in the Bronx before the Cross Bronx Expressway, before Moses barreled through the city, creating uh, thoroughfares. And I just uh, remember it being a wonderful place. Maybe I was a. Ex- extraordinarily positive kid, but I do remember the excitement of the train. I do remember how fabulous it was that all your relatives were like a block away. I do remember uh, walking to PS4. And uh, I want to get all of those sensibilities maybe into a current day Alma's way.
1: Were you out and about in the street when you were a kid?
2: Yes, yes. And I think a reason that a lot of kids' shows are placed in the suburbs is because a lot of people who work in children's television like to model a lot of parents being around or kids being close to home and kids not roaming around by themselves. The reality was in my childhood, we did all kinds of things by ourselves in the street we would wait for the bus to stop and stick a beer can under the wheels so the bus would drive over it and we could play kick the can. (laughs) Uh, My brother would hang on to the end of the bus to, you know, get a ride while he was on his roller skates. We did all kinds of things that really we shouldn't be walking around today. And uh, (laughs) we lived in buildings and our You know, they were neighbors, but we roamed around freely. So that's a reason that Alma's Way couldn't be set in an apartment building, as I grew up in, or a project's, because we didn't want to model these kids roaming around by themselves. But I think we've reached a happy kind of middle ground with Alma in that the train is there and there's an urban feel to it.
1: When I think back to my own childhood... (laughs) The main thing I like to do was like go around and do stuff. And it's an experience that I think a lot of folks who live, you know, I think people who live in, grow up in rural environments have that experience. I guess they're going down to the crick or whatever. Uh, I don't mean to sound patronizing. I just don't. It's not a world I know about. But like, you know, in the city, when I started when I was seven, eight, nine years old, I was, like, going and doing stuff, even if it's just going to the corner store or going down to the boys' club or, you know, these things that were a few blocks from my house. And that sense of exploring is so important to childhood.
2: Yeah. Well, I was actually – we have a running uh, cocktail party every Tuesday with the Sesame Street writers. And we Zoom every Tuesday and, and sort of chat about things. And one of my friends was saying that as a kid, he always walked to his friend's house. And he said that was a moment of that time of walking through the streets and getting to his house. I cherished. I was had my own thoughts. I could look around. I uh, could put two and two together correctly or incorrectly. It didn't matter. And I cherished that time without anything particular to do or think about. And he said he has the hardest time getting that idea across to his grandchild who just wants to sort of be connected or, you know, play a game on his device on his way to do something. And that kind of free-flowing, musing thoughts is escapes a kid as to why that would be enjoyable.
1: I think sometimes also when home is not an entirely comfortable place, those kinds of family and caretakers that are outside the home and even almost like transitory become important. Like yeah. I think of one bus driver, and when I say bus driver, I'm not going to talk school bus driver, but a guy who drove the 49 Van Ness Mission where I grew up, like he used to put his hand over the, over the fare box <laughs> when we would get on the bus, so we couldn't put our money into the fare box, and then we would have money for for candy for now and later's when we got where we were going. And I think about those kinds of people are the people who ran the the liquor store down the street from my house, who were like looking out, you know. And yeah. sometimes when you're out in the world, those kinds of people, and that was something that. I always saw on Sesame Street, like those the people in your neighborhood, right? Right, um, right. It's a kind of a tapestry,
2: right? And it's a comforting feeling that uh, that that was a very nice gesture of that bus driver to give you this uh, easy treat, and you didn't have to interact with him. It was a communication between you and the bus driver that was probably pretty silent and uh, and something you could look forward to and not make a big deal about it. And uh, those are nice interactions that children have with adults that they might not have these days. Was your house
1: a safe place when you were a kid?
2: Absolutely not. (laughs) As I've uh, stated in my memoir, so I don't mind saying publicly, I was raised in a tumultuous household that was ruled by domestic violence. And uh, I spent a lot of time uh, finding refuge in my mind looking out the window at the train going by, and watching television. And uh, I formed a lot of my thoughts about the world doing those three things and looking down at the neighborhood activity. You knew who had a fight with whom. You knew what marriage was on the rocks. You knew which father was coming home at an angle, a little tipsy. (laughs) You knew who was the best at double dutch. You could sort of see these dramas unfold. And coupled with watching television, I formed a lot of opinions and thoughts about the world.
1: Your folks were together and your uh, father was abusive toward your mother. Yes, yes. I mean, you must have loved your dad because he was your dad. I've heard you talk about him making you laugh by wiggling his ears. (laughs) Did anyone ever explain to you what was going on or how people who were married and seemed to love each other could have that happen between them?
2: No, I actually thought it was normal. I thought that everybody's household was like that in some way or other. It, it was the only example that I saw. As a matter of fact, I remember one day visiting some people unexpectedly. My brother always used to say that we had a habit of, that our friends had a habit of showing up unannounced and hungry. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> we, we visited these people, and uh, the mother and the father were, he was teaching her a song on the guitar, and the the child was playing with a truck in front of the living room, you know, in front of them on the, on the floor. And I remember being surprised at the tranquility of the place and how they were interacting so nicely. It was like, whoa. This is like something new. And I didn't, I knew it was different from my family and my household that was tense all the time. But I, I just filed it away. The way kids file things away and you don't come to any conclusion about it, you just file filed it away. It wasn't until I got older that my sister said to me, this is probably a terrible situation that we're living in. And you don't know you don't know what goes on between a man and a woman as a kid. I mean, you kind of can guess when you're very much older and have some sympathy. But it was just kind of it just kind of went on and I assumed it went on in everybody's household and I mean, nobody talked about domestic violence. It was uh the the only ads I remember on the train about family culture was uh you don't want your kids to come from a broken home. And I'd always think, I do. I would love to come from a broken home. <laughs> <laughs> so there you are.
1: <laughs> I think I might have been seven years old when I had the realization I was glad my parents were not divorced. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to. Yes. So, uh, so there you are. Even more to get into with Sonia Manzano. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR.
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com/slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. The Capital One Venture X Business Card has no preset spending limit, so the card's purchasing power can adapt to meet business needs plus the card earns unlimited double miles on every purchase so the more a business spends the more miles earned and when traveling the Venture X business card grants access to over 1300 airport lounges the Venture X business card what's in your wallet terms and conditions apply find out more at capital1.com/venturexbusiness
1: welcome back to Bullseye i'm Jesse Thorne If you're just joining us, we are replaying my 2021 interview with Sonia Manzano. For nearly 45 years, she played Maria on Sesame Street. These days, she has a show of her own, also on PBS. The new show is an animated series called Alma's Way. Its second season is airing now. Let's get back into our conversation. Can I play a little bit of you singing in Godspell? Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Literally, in this case, since it's Godspell, Kevin, <laughs> play a little bit of uh, of Sonia, who was in the original original cast of Godspell. Sonia, I really truly don't think you could have a better I was in acting college in 1970 credit than to have been in the cast of in the in the development cast of Godspell that ended up off Broadway.
2: I know. It was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. This was at the time of hair and story theater and rock musicals. This was a new idea. And John Michael Tablack, it was his uh, director's thesis was spelled this idea of telling the parables, you know, with 10 clowns. And I learned so much. First of all, I learned that, that I would do something and people laughed. That was a big one. That's very powerful, and then uh, we came to Cafe La Mama, and with some cast adjustments, and Stephen Schwartz came in, and kudos to him—he wrote a song for me to open the second act, incorporating the only three notes I could hit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you sound fantastic on the record, son. <laughs>
2: And I had a very developed character. I was, uh, you know, the sexy clown and (laughs) comedically sexy. And I loved, uh, you know, I was inspired by Mae West and doing all of those asides. And, uh, you know, and I I would, it would annoy me when I would open up the second act from the back of the house and people would go into their playbills just to look me up as opposed to looking at me. And that's when I would say things like "It ain't in your playbill," and, uh, <laughs> with as much innuendo as I could muster. <laughs> and uh, you know, a, a lot, a lot of the clergy would come, and I would say things like "Your collar's on backwards" and stuff like that. <laughs>
1: You're definitely the first sexy clown ever to appear on our program. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I swear great big converse sneakers, you know clown converse sneakers with net stockings. I had a lot of fun. It was great and i uh I mean sometimes when you're in that space of creativity on stage and you're nothing a fire could break out and you're in it. you're just flying. It's a wonderful high and uh you know, I realize a lot of American actors don't have that opportunity because. This was a long process. It was six months of working on this and developing it. And uh, I I expected that experience in every other project that I did. And wouldn't you know it, I had it again on Sesame Street because, you know, when I fell in with those guys. How
1: old were you when you
2: auditioned for Sesame Street? 21.
1: Had you seen the show before? 21.
2: Oh, yes. I saw it at Carnegie Mellon University, and I I flipped when I saw it. I walked into the student union and there was um James Earl Jones reciting the alphabet in this very deliberate manner, you know how we talked A B C and the letters flashed over his head and I thought this must be a show that teaches lip reading or something. It was the oddest <laughs> thing. And then then there was an animation Wanda the Witch which Gracie Slick sang, I believe, of Jefferson Airplane. And then they cut to the street and I see these black people on television. Oh, my goodness. In a city? As we were talking, uh, we were used to seeing children's shows in in um, rural or suburban areas or fantasy places. That looked like my neighborhood. There was a fire escape on it. Construction doors. And I had personal feelings about it because all the television I watched when I was a kid, and I'll, I've said this many times in many interviews, I'm not seeing yourself reflected makes you feel invisible. And on some uncomfortable level that you don't want to reveal to anyone, you don't know what you're going to be when you grow up or what you're going to contribute. If you don't see it, you can't be it. And so that took its toll on me, I guess. And so when I got to be on Sesame Street, it was really great.
1: What did you do at the audition? Steinbeck monologue?
2: (laughs) I'm still trying to remember the name of that book. The Moon is Blue, The Moon is Down. Anyway, no, uh, this was a time in television when this show was first created, Sesame Street, when one or two people could make a decision. OK, so I met John Stone, one of the creators of the show. I mean, the creator of the show, really. There were other people who had he was the leader. And if you watch the documentary Street Gang, you'll know that. Anyway, I had to see him in his office and tell a story, a scary story that I made up, solve a problem, a visual problem, you know, like a sorting song. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. And I didn't even have to sing. He just said uh, we chatted, and the next thing I know, uh, I got the job to be Maria. And then I had to make a big decision because the they were they were doing the Godspell movie, and I had to do one or the other. And I didn't know what to do. And I was so... I mean, what did I know about show business or what was important or what was... And I just let my agent decide. (laughs) He said, I think you should stick with Sesame Street. And so I did.
1: Did you stop going to other auditions after you got Sesame Street?
2: No, no. I continued to do Godspell at night, and I did Sesame Street during the day. And... uh, These were kind of the early days of Norman Lear sitcoms. So the door was opening a little bit for people of color. And, of course, your agent wants you to, you know, make more money than you're making on public television. So you'd go up for these. I would go up for these jobs. But I was always like thinking, oh, what if I get it? Then I'll have to leave Sesame Street. But there weren't a lot of I wasn't comfortable. I've always hated auditioning. I always take it personally. They always say, oh, don't don't take it personally. You know, it's whether you're right. I always say, What do you mean you don't want me? (laughs) I could never take the rejection. And I was rejected a lot. You know, I'd have to I have to be um, make believe I was African American or make believe I was I had a Spanish accent, which I couldn't I I felt self-conscious doing. I didn't fit into any roles. Whereas my white girlfriends, they were going out for parts of girls just like them. I couldn't just be myself. I had to sort of, like, you know, be somebody that um, that I didn't know. So all of that stuff, I just d- didn't like it. But I'd go dutifully <laughs> and go to auditions and not get the jobs.
1: There's this great hip-hop magazine called Ego Trip. They put out a couple of books, and one of the books is called The Ego Trip, Big Book of Racism. And one of my favorite things in that book is a list of the greatest uh, Mexican roles on screen as played by Puerto Ricans? <laughs> it's like, granted, it's like half Luis Guzman, but like <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, you know one yeah. of those one of those things about it is like when there isn't representation, you know, what representation there is 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 either so vague. Or so like such an awkward fit, you know what I mean? Like,
2: yeah, yeah like, yeah,
1: you're Latina, but you're not Mexican American, you know what I mean?
2: <laughs> right, right, right. Well, I'm happy to say that all the cast in Alma's way is Latin. There weren't a lot when I auditioned for Sesame Street, there weren't a lot of Latin performers, you know, on Broadway. Or on television. So it's not like I, you know, fought through thousands of women. I didn't. There weren't a lot of uh, Latino actors. But I'm happy to say that On Way is, is cast, all Latins, and the head writers Latin, etc. But let me tell you a story about, I call this the Roosevelt-Franklin syndrome. Because I think the reason there's so much pressure on whether you're Latin, Mexican, or Puerto Rican Latin is because there's so few opportunities. Sesame Street's a big hit. They decide they need a black puppet as popular as Grover or any of the other puppets. Matt Robinson, the original Gordon, African-American, creates Roosevelt Franklin. And Roosevelt Franklin was a super hit. He was this urban kid and he had this little funny way of talking. Well, he was a big hit, but there was so much pressure on this one puppet to represent every kind of African-American kid. Some people thought he was too urban. Some people thought he wasn't urban enough. Some people thought he shouldn't speak funny because it's a bad role model for some people. It never occurred to anyone to make another one. So you would have Carlton, like Carlton on uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and... Will Smith. So you have a lot, like you have in the Caucasian world, you know, you have the smart guy, the dumb guy, the sneaky guy, blah, blah, blah. No, no problem. But it was all this one character had to fulfill everybody's hopes and dreams. So what was the answer? Cut them. They cut the character and Sesame Street did not have another black puppet for 50 years. Imagine.
1: On. Our show, Sonia, I'm the dumb one, and my producer, Kevin, is the sneaky one.
2: (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Well, it takes all kinds (laughs) to make the world go around, doesn't it?
1: (laughs) At what point in your career working on Sesame Street did you realize or accept or embrace that children's entertainment was your life's work, not just a gig you had.
2: Oh, that's a really good question and I I am not sure. I was just so drawn to it. I was so interested in what these people were doing. I remembered my own childhood. I thought, what if this was wrong when I was a kid? This would have helped me better than Romper Room and father knows best and spin and marty. So I think that I I was just attracted to to Sesame Street because of what they were doing. And I uh, wanted to be a part of it. One of the early titles from my memoir was Healing Myself Through Time in Television. <laughs> Thankfully, somebody talked me out of that one. It sounds like a television manual or something, right? But that's what I really felt. So I thought I could, uh, I could do that for other kids. And it just interests me. I like it. They they inspire me, kids. The things they come up with, the the way they see the world, the their enthusiasm. You know, you'll watch you'll watch a newsreel in some war torn area, and uh, there's a kid in the background, like trying to get the camera's attention, waving and making faces, and you're thinking, wait, you're in a war torn area, you know. <laughs> Or the soldiers set up barricades and there's kids playing hide and seek. I, you know, that kind of jumping over around the obstacle through, you know, I'm going to make it over there, is something that, like, turns me on.
1: Maria was my favorite character on Sesame Street. And I was thinking today why that was since you were coming on the show. And one of the reasons i think is that you know you have an extraordinary ability to convey caring and empathy without being patronizing but to me that was the that was the obvious thing that was good about maria <laughs> and i think <laughs> the second thing and i couldn't even think of an example of it it was just a feeling that i had was that Maria was tough or fierce. Like you felt like I felt like anyway, Maria was down to take care of herself and also like down to metaphorically scrap on my behalf. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) And I think maybe it's like, maybe it was how, you related to Oscar the Grouch who you had such who your character had such regard for but also like you know had a like engaged sort of firmly on the terms that he presented which is his grouchiness right (laughs) like right there with him like I see you and we're gonna figure this out (laughs) (laughs) yeah sometimes when I'm feeling blue. I think of an old
2: abandoned shoe. (laughs) And if that's not enough, I think of two. (laughs) And if that's not enough trash, I think of you. Wait a minute, Oscar. You just said that thinking of trash reminds you of me.
0: Yeah.
2: Well, that's not very nice.
0: Oh, to a grouch it is.
2: Listen, anyway, uh, this trash does not belong in the street. It belongs in your can, so back up. Oh, no, no, no. I don't want it back. Don't you understand? It's for you. It's for me? Yeah.
1: But I wonder if that was intentional. I yeah. wonder if you wanted Maria to be something more than just a symbol of maternal love, or if it was just something that shines through because of who you are.
2: Well, it took me a while to find that. I know that the, the whole notion of being on a kid's show uh, was foreign to me. And I and I, uh, I mean, I had my friends looking at me. I didn't want them to think I was some wussy girl because it was a kid's show. I mean, it was hard for me to find who I was. And John Stone kept saying, be yourself, be yourself, be yourself. And so I decided to to be myself, to really get down to who I was. Some of the stuff that I, in the early years, I'm positively snarky. I cannot (laughs) believe they let me get away with it. But they did. And it didn't frighten kids. I mean, you liked it. And a lot of kids liked it. And I, uh, I mean, that was my sensibility. That was my, you know, I came from a tough neighborhood. That's how we were. I couldn't be something else. So I think that 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 uh, that comes that came across. They were so free in those days; they just let you do whatever you wanted on, on camera. There's a moment where I do a scene with Northern Calloway, who played David, and I'm dem- we're demonstrating near and far, and Grover's in the middle as Maria and David get closer and closer. And he and I are playing it like we're about to engage in a lip lock, <laughs> you know. You know, and Grover's in the middle. We're completely ignoring Grover and like locked into each other's eyes as we walk closer and closer and closer to each other to demonstrate near and far. And you know, it's it's really cool. I love to see that on YouTube. <laughs> 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 when did you become a writer on Sesame Street? I was on the show about 8 years and I was uh I felt I had contributed as much as I could as a performer or you know my character was established and I wanted to do more so I started to look behind the scenes and I saw that that's where the power was I started to question the latino content And the producer, Dulcie Singer, said, you know what? Why don't you try writing it? What were you questioning? Well, I thought that all the the, the Spanish curriculum was always uh, guitars or food or language, like static, like culture was in a museum, you know, and so next to that is Ernie and Bert. And that sophisticated humor that worked on so many levels. I said, why can't we bring that to the Latino culture segments? That's not like teaching somebody about Latin culture. And so she told me to try to do it myself. I did. And the first thing I did was a takeoff of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. And I'm obviously Ginger and Emilio Delgado, who plays Luis is Fred. And we're, we're, We're teaching that uh, all I means hello. And because of all that television watching I did, I just loved Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. It was sophisticated and frothy and funny and glorious. And I thought, how can I present this curriculum that all I means hello in the most sophisticated, frothy way? Well, who else but Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers? I love that piece.
1: What I like about what you're describing, and it's something that I I like a lot about your new show too, is that so often, especially in kids' educational programming, but in kids' stuff in general and and even more broadly, when quote-unquote diversity is made a priority, what that means is using people of color to explain their experience to white people Exactly. Um, While the white people involved in that same thing get to assume that the person on the other side of the television or the other side of the speaker or the stage understands their experience innately so they can go to the second or third level of the thing immediately. Which, you know, both alienates people who don't share that experience when the white people stuff comes on (laughs) right? (laughs) and alienates the people of color who might be listening when the stuff about people like them comes on because they're like, yeah, well, of course I know
2: this. Yes. Don't right, talk to me like right. I'm a baby. Yes, of course. Right.
1: And what I'm hearing you, what I'm hearing you describe is that you wanted to have the same kind of lived in quality to the stuff about the Latino characters and the same sort of kind of breadth that you wanted to do Fred Astaire and Ginger <laughs> Rogers with Luis.
2: Of course. Yes, Absolutely. <laughs> So the Latin characters aren't there for the benefit of white people to understand us and like us and see we're not that scary or whatever, but we're just, we are what you are. Make of it what you will, but be what we are. So the characters in Alma's Way are, uh, you know, the mother's a music teacher. She forgets her keys. You know, the father picks up a toy and accidentally throws it in the washing machine. You know, they're real, they're real people. That was very important to me. We'll
1: finish up with Sonia Manzano after the break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Support for NPR and the following message come from Bombas. Bombus makes absurdly soft socks, underwear, and t-shirts. And for every item you purchase, Bombus donates another to someone facing homelessness. Get 20% off your first purchase at bombus.com slash NPR and use code NPR. Hi, uh, this is Lori Kilmartin. And I'm Jackie Cation. And we have a podcast called The Jackie and Lori Show on
2: Max Fun. And it's very exciting because what do we talk about? Comedy. Stand-up comedy. We both do
0: stand-up comedy and have since the dawn of Christ. Well, Jackie. Is that offensive? It is offensive to me because you've aged me. (laughs) Uh, We started in the late 80s and we're still here. You can't kill us. So go to
2: The Jackie and Lori Show on Max Fun and listen to that.
1: Jackie and Laurie Show. show. New episodes Monday. Call me on MaximumFun.org. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Sonia Manzano. She played Maria on Sesame Street. Let's get back into our conversation. Your character, Maria, and. Uh, the character who became her husband, Luis, were you know, probably the most central depiction of family on Sesame Street. You got married on the show, had a kid on the show, and those things were mirroring what was happening in your own life, in real life. Right. What did you want to show about those things on TV? What did you want to talk to kids about getting married, falling in love, having children, having a family?
2: Well, I think of that time on Sesame Street as we were the first reality show without the whining. (laughs) (laughs) And I was, it kind of mirrored my life. I fell in love and got married and had a baby, and Maria followed suit. But what we were trying to get across was that these Latinx people had the same hopes and dreams as everybody else. At that time in television, when the Latin character came on, you waited for the taco joke. You waited for reference to that person's ethnicity. That was why they were on the sitcom. They weren't part of the sitcom. That's why they were there. And that never happened at Sesame Street, obviously. So this family just... You know, they worried about daycare. They they fell in love. They were just like any other American family. And that was the overall meaning of that love life, that life story that that we showed.
1: You know, I thought like you had this on-screen relationship with Luis played by Emilio Delgado. For pretty much longer than anyone else has an entertainment fiction relationship, romantic relationship with anybody. Like, that's longer than a – there might be soap opera characters, but, you know, it's longer than anything that's on stage. It's like the the two of you (laughs) who were romantically attached on television for decades – (laughs)
2: decades i know i know i know i can't
1: even imagine it like there must have been months on end when you were just like oh i can't look at him anymore
2: (laughs) (laughs) you know but at that time we were all such a tight group we'd hang around all day at the studio working and then we'd have drinks and dinner afterwards (laughs) or we'd go to each other's house on the weekends the night before I really got married, my husband went out drinking with Emilio. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and Emilio I mean, was like, let me give you some advice about what I know, it's like I to know. be married to her.
2: Married to her, right, right. I mean, sort of, it really was, um, was, was that way. It's such a loving relationship on screen
1: and such a rich relationship on screen. Not because you know, I don't remember at least any storylines about Maria and Luis fighting or something like that. But the characters aren't just transparent avatars for love in a romantic relationship. Like they feel like human beings who are in an actual relationship. Mm -hmm. And it's such a special thing to see on TV when you're a kid. I know it was for me as somebody whose parents didn't actively did not love each other.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, That's interesting you say that. And I think a lot of times children's shows, the characters, they shy away from showing love between the parents and affection. And uh, we've tried to incorporate that in Alma's way. Mommy and Papi actually do have a bit of a, you know, playful argument deciding where to put the bases when they're going to set up a stickball game. and uh, But they kiss a lot, and they holding hands, and and um, we have a production supervisor who keeps an eye on all the animations when they come in and says, oh, this is an opportunity for them to touch, or oh, this is an opportunity for them to kiss in the background, you know, doing... Uh, Uh, And I think that, uh, I mean, it's animated. This is new to me. I'm used to real people. But we're trying to implement exactly what you're talking about, that kind of affection that, you know, a kid looks at and, you know, they don't have to know everything that's going on between them, but they can sense that those two people are looking out for each other.
1: You must more than almost any other person in the United States today have people you don't know coming up to you crying.
2: (laughs) I know. It's a big effect I have on people. It makes me feel really great. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it really
1: is a lot to, like, it is both the most amazing thing in the world and a lot to hold.
2: I know. It's like, oh, let's make Sandra Oh cry again. We were at an event. The whole cast was, it was some sort of award show. And she started crying. I said, oh, my goodness. (laughs) Because uh, she was so happy to be. Yes. And it's like all kinds of people, people who watched in Manila, in the Philippines, will say, oh, wow, you were just, you know, you reminded me of me somehow. I'm thinking in Manila, really, you know. But but it's true, and I think it's like you're a catalyst for when, you know, because in those days kids didn't start school till they were five. You know, now they're at school much younger. But in those, I think you're a catalyst, and you suddenly they see me or any of the cast, and they're thrown back into that moment. Those sitting in milky laps, <laughs> and at that moment in their life where they're most absorbing everything when they're just separating from you you know they realize they're a little bit different from you they're looking at the world and uh, and sesame street was showing films and and uh, animation and a lot of stimulating visual information and i think that's why they cry i guess <laughs>
1: I was driving my kids to school this morning, and I was listening to you talking with uh, Maria Hinojosa from Latino USA, and I counted. I think it was maybe a 12-minute segment or a 14-minute segment, something like that. And I had to force myself not to cry four times. (laughs) Oh, and it not, I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea, not because I don't think I should be able to cry, but just because I was driving my kids, like it would be right. not safe.
2: <laughs> your kids are looking at you. What's the matter with you? It's just a red light. <laughs>
1: but I think I was just so grateful for you and your work. It, it's really special and has meant a lot in my life. Thank you. Sonia Manzano from 2021. Her show Alma's Way is sweet and lovely. You can watch it on PBS Kids. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Here at my house... It's pouring rain, and uh, my outgoing mail got really wet. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Brianna Paz. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by DJ W, also known as Dan Wally. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It was written and recorded by the Go Team, thanks to them and to their label, Memphis Industries. Bullseye is on Instagram. We share interview highlights, behind-the-scenes looks, and more there. We are at Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. We're also on Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.
0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.